Well, good evening and welcome to Uni Church. Uh, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. So great to see you as we gather together uh, to look at God's Word and to think through what God is saying to us tonight. Why don't we pray and ask God that through His Spirit, He'd help us to understand what He has to say and that He'd challenge us and comfort us and change us. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we come together tonight to hear from you. We're so thankful that you've spoken to us in your word and that your word that was just read is powerful and effective. In the past, you've spoken in so many different ways, but now finally spoken to us in your son. And this word about your son is powerful. So we pray tonight you would challenge us. You would, by your spirit, help us to see what this passage means for us and how we respond. And we might come away tonight having heard you speak. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about defining moments. Uh, moments where God's word has really had an impact on shaping us or our life or uh, brought about a moment in our life that has changed how we live and act. And I want to share with you tonight one of those moments that has impacted me from the word of God. And it's in this passage. You see, two of my biggest fears in life are either looking foolish or looking weak. Who wants to look foolish? Is anyone like, yeah, I love it. Usually, yeah, they're the clowns, right? They're the clowns that put their hands up and they always wear makeup. So no one knows who they really are. Like, do we really like really looking foolish? And then weak, who wants to be the weakling? No one goes, when I grow up, I'm going to be the weakest in the class. Like, no one says that. Like, we, we want to be strong. But if you wind the clock back to 2007, that's exactly what I look like. Foolish and weak. Picture this, I was running through waste deep water, chasing after a four-wheel drive. And, and I'm, I'm going along in this bush track, there's water everywhere, screaming out, help, help, I'm wearing just my underwear. Because I took my clothes off so they wouldn't get wet, so that if we had to stay on this bush track overnight, I'd have some clothes to sleep in. I'm bolting after this four-wheel drive going, help, help. And he couldn't hear me, he's just driving on like four-wheel drive dudes do, you know, just there's water everywhere and there's this massive Tonka truck thing. Anyway, I'm running, I'm running. Finally, I catch him and he kind of stops and just looks at me and goes, he, it's written all over his face. He didn't say it. He's like, you idiot. Like, well, you look so foolish and weak. And I felt it right there. I'm gasping, like, <laughs> I just like bolted after him. And I just get to the window and I say to him, look, I've, I've just driven my car through this long puddle and water came up over the windscreen and the engine seized and now the car's filling up with water and my wife and 10-week-old son are in the car. Can you come and help? And the guy's like, not get in, I'll help. He's like, jump in the back in the ute. So I'm there in my underwear, cold, as he kind of reverses back through this track, back to our car. There it was. He's like, oh, that's pretty dumb. I'm like, yeah, all my manliness is gone. Right? I, I thought it was wise. I kind of looked. I went in slowly. But how was I to know there'd be a big dip in the middle and the water would wash up over the windscreen and we'd be stuck right there. Anyway, he, he goes, look, I need to go find someone and get a rope. He disappeared. Never saw him again. We had to wait three or four hours for another the, the tow company. I ran to get reception. There was no reception. And they came and finally towed us out. There I was feeling totally foolish and weak. Well, fast forward from that point uh, two years later to 2009. Uh, and this time, the obstacle wasn't a puddle of water, but an ocean of fear. Uh, Sarah and I were, were thinking through moving from Sydney to Auckland to start a church. 
We've been considering doing this. We'd heard of the need for more Bible teaching and training churches. And people had encouraged us we should go and think through this opportunity to see that happen. And so in my kind of like eagerness to see this happen and being assessed through a church planting organization that they were like, yeah, this is good. We announced to our friends, to our family, to everyone around that we're going to Auckland in 2010. And we made this big announcement. We even made a website. You can go online, auckland2010.com. Right there, you can find it on Wayback Machine if you want to. It's a bit embarrassing. But on the outside, I was incredibly brave and keen going, yeah, we, we want to do this. Let's do this. We'll finish college and then we'll, we'll head out. But underneath, I was filled with an overwhelming fear of my own inadequacies, of my own foolishness, that I'd been foolish in saying something publicly, which now I felt like I was compelled to do. You ever do that? You say, I'm going to do something. And you're like, oh, what did I say that for? Well, that was me at that point. And then I, I looked at my own weaknesses. I was sitting there this day in 2009, just feeling like, oh, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why is this happening? I looked at myself and I was very much convicted. I don't think I'm the best preacher in the world. I don't think I'm the best pastor or or, or the best leader. I haven't got the best grades in our class. I'm not one of the the best evangelists. I'm not even one of the best Christians. And I just felt totally inadequate. Just thinking, why am I planning this church? Why, Why am I saying yes to this? There's people that are far better than me. There's people in my year at college that have got brains the size of small planets. It's people that kind of preach and everyone becomes Christians. The whole, everyone in front of them at that moment. Uh, you know, there's people that are just so good with others. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I might have looked like I had it all together on the outside. But underneath, I just felt so foolish again by telling the world we're going to Auckland. Because I felt so weak and inadequate underneath. And it was into that headspace that God really did something quite profound in me. I'd taken a short contract job in the college holidays where I had to drive long distances to do wireless network surveys. I had an IT background, and so I got this kind of contract job where you, you drove long distances to these shopping centers and did a survey of the wireless networks that were there and then kind of went on to the next place. And in, in a week and a half, I drove 3,000 Ks. So Shelley's big. And, and lots and lots of driving in their hire car, which is awesome. And during that time when I had this hire car, I just had lots of time to think because Australian roads are pretty much just straight when you get out there and nothing else to look at. It's just flat. But then I started listening to some talks. I brought some CDs and and some parts of the Bible. And driving while you're listening to the Bible is so good, by the way. If you ever get an opportunity, you know how you fall asleep during some sermons, um, maybe here at Unichurch, or or maybe when you're just sitting at home listening. Uh, But when you're driving, you can't fall asleep. And, And so you kind of stay awake and you listen. I found it really helpful. And I listened to a talk and the passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it struck me that these two experiences of weakness and foolishness that I just described to you came clashing together and gave me a sense of clarity and confidence about the task ahead of church planting. But it wasn't in the way you might expect. It wasn't that I felt like, yes, I'm good enough. In fact, it was quite the opposite. God convicted me that there was no way in the world I would ever be good enough to plant a church. And that gave me great, great freedom. So let me show you why that's the case and what God showed me that day. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. It's on the screen. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Now here, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church in Corinth. It's a church that he'd kind of evangelized into existence. Uh, It's a church that he'd just praised for having 
every spiritual gift in Christ. If there was any church that was the gifted church that had like all the people with brains the size of small planets and all the people with a kind of cool style and and fancy speakers, it was this church. Like these guys had it all. If anyone could boast in their suitability for ministry, for doing kingdom work, surely it'd be this church. They had every spiritual gift. Power preachers, great intellect, wisdom, signs, wonders, miracles. And they wanted God to work amongst them in a big way. And who doesn't? But what Paul says to the Corinthian church is that God doesn't need powerful preachers. He doesn't need miraculous healers to show his power. He doesn't need an army of incredibly gifted people to bring about his plan. In fact, those things that the world sees as so important and persuasive and powerful are actually counterproductive for God's plan. They empty God's power of its effectiveness. Have a look on the screen. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its effect. There's a sense in which the eloquent wisdom that Paul could have preached the gospel with would have caused the cross of Christ to be emptied of its effect, would have taken the the focus off the message of the news of Jesus. What is the power of God? What is the way God has chosen to work in his world? It's the gospel. The gospel just means news. News that Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son. News that Jesus is the promised king of all history. The one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. That that Jesus is God the Son and that Jesus died. Now, when you hear that for the first time, you think, well, that sounds great. Uh, Nazareth, I don't know where Nazareth is really on a map. It'd be pretty hard to pick it out. Um, But that he's God the Son, that's pretty important. He's the King, that's pretty important. He's been given all authority in heaven and earth. That's amazing, but that he died? Of an anticlimax? Like, what's the point of, why why is this such great news? That the best king in the world died. There's a sense where the the world around us hears this news, and they just go, this is ridiculous. This is laughable. You worship a king who died? Well, what's the point of that? But God says it is the power of God. Look at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's power... For his action in the world does not come from the places that the world thinks it comes from. God's power is news that God the Son died for me and for you. That he died in our place. That he took the penalty for our sin on himself. And he provided a way that by trusting in him, we could be forgiven and called God's God's children. And that God raised him to life to be ruler over all, conquering death and offering life forever. That news is God's power. Now, they're just words. <laughs> they're words that, that a child could say. Like, I could probably get a, a one-year-old to say the, the gospel. <laughs> but Paul is saying, and God is saying, this is God's power. These words are so powerful, they'll turn a sinner to a saint. They'll turn someone who is looking down the barrel of death to someone who can experience life forever. 
What greater power is there? What is it that is more powerful that can offer that opportunity to us? And the problem is, we're so immersed in the world around us, and what the world around us sees as powerful that we miss God's power. See, almost everything about Christianity looks foolish and weak. Its message is foolish and weak. Those who believe it look foolish and weak. Those who preach it look foolish and weak. Well, look at me, (laughs) right? Uh, Even those that just speak about the gospel, as we speak about what Jesus did, the world around us laughs and says, how stupid are you to believe that? And that's because the world around us values different things. And that was the same in the world those days. In Jesus' time, the world around us did not value this news about who he was or what he had done. In verse 22, Paul tells us that the Jews, they value miraculous signs. The Jews, they want flash and pop and signs. They're like, show me some awesome miracle and I'll believe. You know, turn that water into wine or do this thing and maybe then I'll I'll be there. And it's not hard to imagine that this Corinthian church that was the spiritually gifted church, they had every spiritual gift possible known to man, It's not hard to imagine that they would have been rolling out a plethora of flash and pop and great healings and amazing words and powerful exorcisms. That's exactly what the Jews wanted to hear. And it's as if they'd been doing that in a way that the world around thought, oh, maybe this is powerful. Greeks, on the other hand, they valued wisdom and logic. You know, Socrates, the thinker, the hmm. That's what the Greeks valued, like the philosophy part of the university. You know, a little bit weird, but, you know, they've got good logic. Sorry if you're a philosopher, I love you. Yeah. And, and so they love these ideas and the freedom to live how you want. And, and the Corinthian church were like this too. They had great freedom. They're like, you know, God gives us amazing freedom. You can be progressive. You can be on the cutting edge of moral thought and action. They, they would want speakers that had great rhetoric and style and dazzle and wow their listeners. That's no different today. Our world loves those with great rhetoric. Now, Jordan Peterson's coming to town in February. And people kind of love what he says and the way that he says it. Some people hate it as well. But they love his, his careful rhetoric and language and the way that he uses these words. If you haven't checked him out, check him out online. And it's part of us that goes, man, imagine if we could speak like Jordan Peterson. Imagine if we could take what he says and then ground it in, in, in the truth of the gospel rather than atheistic thought that he has and show how it all links together. It'd be amazing. We'd be like on fire. The world around us values things that are very different to God. What the world values, God does not. So in verse 20, Paul lays down a challenge to the church. He, he rolls out the, the poster boys of ancient popularity and power and kind of challenges this Corinthian church who is trying to shift towards making the gospel come across in a way that that, it fits in with the culture around it to to ask them where are these people look at verse 20 where is the one who is wise where is the teacher of the law where is the debater of this age he's kind of saying step forward you you wise ones Step forward, you teachers of the law, you debaters of this age. Where are you? (laughs) Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? I think if Paul said that today, he'd be doing something like this. He'd kind of be saying to people, all right, where are the wise ones? Who is the wisest person? Imagine Albert Einstein. Here's a photo of him. 
I had to work hard to find a photo that didn't have his tongue poking out. <laughs> Check that out. It's really hard to find. But, 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 but imagine Albert Einstein came before God, you know, and he brought his wisdom before God. Or what do you think God would say to Albert Einstein? Wow, Albert, energy equals mass times the square of the speed of light. Impressive. You worked it out. I said just four words, let there be light. And the whole thing happened. But you had all this wisdom and intellect and you threw it at physics and you understood the world that I created in such a great way, but you didn't submit to my son. You didn't recognize the one who died for you in your place. You rejected him. You had all the brains in the world, but where has that gotten you now? It's foolishness. Or imagine the, the scholar. Who is the scholar of today? Is it maybe, maybe this guy? There we go, Richard Dawkins. Is he the scholar of this age? He's the evolutionary biologist. Well, what would God say if he were to meet Richard Dawkins? Wow, Richard, you know, you've got some pretty convincing arguments. You nearly convinced me I didn't exist. Like, whoa. Or what about the philosopher of this age? Who is the one who understands society really, really well? I reckon it's this guy, Steve Jobs. So he has the ability to understand your needs and desires and to create a product you never knew you ever wanted and then suddenly make you want it. And be like, this is awesome. I can't live without an iPad, you know? I can't live without whatever it is. He has this great ability to market that stuff, or did, to become the biggest company in the world, to kind of have $1 trillion worth of cash. It's a lot. I can't even imagine that. But where is Steve Jobs now? For all his brilliance and the kind of, he's, he's philosopher of this age and understanding the world that he has. I mean this in no disrespect, but he's dead. So you could take our brightest and our best, our coolest and our, and our most marketable and, and the most intelligent people that we have in the world and the most powerful. You could put them in a room, but they would not be able to think or reason or build or buy their way out of death. Where is all of that wisdom in the face of death? It's gone. It's nothing. Yet through the foolishness of a Jewish carpenter, nailed to a cross, God has saved the world and conquered death. A billion nuclear bombs couldn't deflect the wrath of God for what we had done against him. But a Jew hanging on a cross did. Jesus, God the Son, dying in our place, made it possible for our sins to be forgiven. And for us to live forever. That's a powerful message. But to our world, it's foolish. It's always been foolish. Even Jesus, to his closest friends, when, when he told them about his plans, they kind of go, what? Uh, come with me. Uh, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, it's on the screen as well if you want to follow along. Jesus is here. Uh, he, he's just said to his disciples, John and Peter, and those gathered around him, who do you say that I am? And they've said, Peter's gone, you are the Messiah. You are God's promised king that we've been waiting for all these years to come, the one who will rule forever. That's who you are. And Jesus says this, he began to teach them that it was necessary for the son of man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. And what do you think? Peter's just gone. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. What does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus. He says to the, the promised king of the world, I oh, know you got it wrong. Let me describe to you what needs to happen. You're like, Peter, shut up. <laughs> right? 
He thought it was foolish. In 1857, some archaeologists came across uh, some graffiti that was scratched into a wall dated around the 1st or 2nd century, about 100 to 200 years after Jesus' death. And this is what it looked like. It's a picture of a donkey man nailed to a cross. And there's a a Greek guy, you can tell by the chin. This is typical, right? He's he's right there. uh, There at the foot of the cross, looking up, to kind of like, like worshipping his God. And the text in the Greek says, Alexemenos, that's the Greek dude, you can tell by the end of his name, Alexemenos worships his God. What is that saying? You're an idiot, Alexemenos. Look at you. You worshipped a crucified king. You think that the guy who died on the cross, Jesus, was your king, but we think he's just a donkey, right? a jackass. I'm going to make sure I say that properly. I got in trouble this morning for that. But look at him, he, he, and this here is found on a wall, and this is the reality of what people think about Christianity. Friends, let me be clear, Christianity has never been cool or hip or the popular thing to do, and it never will be. Because Christianity at its heart says that we as humans have rejected God, that we deserve death, that we need help, and no one ever likes being told we need help. No one ever likes being told we're not in control of our life and that we've got someone outside of us who is determining what is good and what isn't. Stitched into our very kind of being as humans, we we want to run from God. And so people aren't going to go, oh, that's great news. I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. I want to run to that. Naturally, we, we run away. What we want instead is to be told that we are wise. We're smart, we're witty, we're powerful, we're intelligent, that we're gifted. Those things are great. You've got the the gifted and talented students in the class, like, oh, those guys especially. You've got those that get first-class honours, those that get permanent head damage, which is PhDs, right? (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. See, I just wanted to be witty. You see, we, we want to be loved, we, we, we want to be funny, and, and we, that's the way we want to go. We don't want people to look at us and go, you're foolish and weak. That was a dumb joke. Well, <laughs> God's word keeps telling us, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the world around us hates the news of what Jesus has done. Because to the eyes of everyone else, it's stupid and shameful to believe such a foolish story that God would come and, and put himself, if he made the world, on the cross and die for us. There's this moment in a debate between Richard Dawkins and John Lennox, who's a, also an Oxford professor of mathematics. And there's this moment where, where Dawkins says, you believe that your God was so weak that he stepped into the world, that he died at the mercy of his creatures so that he could somehow deal with their wrong and put them in right relationship with God in a weak-willed way. That's crazy. And Lennox goes, yes. (laughs) How amazing is he? (laughs) To the eyes of the world around us, the gospel is shameful and stupid. But God's power is not found in the brilliant philosopher, the gifted, the skillful, the amazing communicator. And that's what I wanted to be deep down. I was thinking that, you know, I could possibly be the one or maybe I needed to be the one that was gifted in all these ways in order to plant a church. That I had all these skills and abilities that therefore God had to work through me if I had them. And the fact that I didn't made me go, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. I wasn't the perfect planter. 
But what I recognized that day in that car was that God's power was not found in anything to do with me, but in the news of who Jesus is and what he's done. That is where God's power is found. I was thinking about my suitability for planting a church. Thinking I, I couldn't do this. And maybe that's you sometimes in different ways. Now, there are really biblical characteristics for people who uh, go into ministry. You've got them in the pastoral epistles in, in Timothy and Titus. And they're important to look at. But all of those are gifts from God. Maybe you at times feel like you aren't godly enough to talk to others about Jesus. You feel like, look, I've not lived a, a perfect life. I, I couldn't talk to them about that. I'd be a bad example. I should just stay quiet and let the opportunity go past. Or perhaps you feel like you don't know enough of the history behind what has actually gone on. And, and you feel like, I, I wouldn't want to speak about this because you know, I'd stuff it up and I wouldn't say it strong enough and they might then walk away or not become a Christian, so I won't say it at all. Or maybe you feel like you haven't been a good enough son or daughter, brother or sister, friend or Christian. And so you can't speak on this stuff. You don't want to bring God's name into any disrepute. And so you just don't say anything because you're filled with such feelings of inadequacy. And you stand back from opportunities to, to serve, to speak, to love. Maybe for you, uh, you feel the pressure in a different way. You want to make the gospel come across to people clearly. And so what you do is you kind of make it more palatable to society. Or when, when God's word speaks about things that culture finds cringeworthy, you just tone back on them and say, oh, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about God's view on sexuality. It's a bit, it's a bit weird and out there. You know, it's one of those things I just put to the side. But, but you know, come and, come and look at this great stuff of what God has given us. You don't need to worry about hell. I mean, I mean hell's kind of there in the Bible, but, you know, it's not really an important doctrine. Uh, don't, don't, just, just don't worry about it. You, you, you don't need to... Worry about this idea of judgment, of God. The Bible's about the God of love. God loves you because you're awesome. Just come to him and you want to make it sound better so people come to Christ. You know, that is the heart of all liberalism. The liberals, those who've walked away from what the Bible says, have walked away because they want to show that God is, well, they want to show a better picture of God, a more palatable picture of God. It comes out of a heart of evangelism in its best sense. But the God that you or others speak of isn't the God of the Bible. It's a different God. And so out of fear for our foolishness and how we come across and appearing weak, we, we change what the Bible says. Or perhaps for you, out of a desire not to look stupid and foolish and weak, you, you just don't say anything. You just say that your relationship with God is a private thing and I'm not going to talk about it to others. I shouldn't put it on them. And so you stand back and you just don't say anything. Why? Because you don't want to come across as foolish. You don't want to come across as weak. You value these relationships. And sometimes you say, well, I want to have the relationship, so I'm not going to say anything. So therefore, I've got a relationship and I can keep that going. But then it gets further on down the line. You've never said anything. And then it becomes five years and you've never said anything. And then you just never say anything. Friends, what God said to me so clearly in the car that day as I looked into this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, what he's saying to us here tonight as we look at his word is this. It's not about me or you. It's not about our skills or gifts or talents that God has given us. You are not good enough. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. We can't be good enough to make God's plans happen because look at us. Look at verse 26. 
Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. We are not good enough for God or his plans. But here's the great news. We don't need to be. Because it does not depend on us. We don't need to be good enough because Jesus was good enough. And the news about him, the thing that the world views as so weak and foolish, is God's power for salvation to all who believe. If you can say, Jesus is God the Son who died for me and has risen and will come back again to judge the living and the dead, we need to trust him. That's it. There is the power of God to say that to people and then pray like crazy that God, through his spirit and his word, brings people to know him and trust him. To think that my skills or talents could somehow make God's word more powerful, it's incredibly arrogant, isn't it? You think you can make God's words more persuasive than God? More powerful than the one who said, let there be light and it came into existence and created the world through his word? We're kidding ourselves. And that's what I came to understand that day in the car. I I was filled with this humility about I wasn't good enough, but it was a a false humility. Because I thought, actually, maybe I could be good enough. Actually, maybe I, I could have the skills that would make this message powerful enough to see people converted. Maybe I, I, I could get to that point. I was just convicted that, whoa, how arrogant I was to think that anyone could be good enough. What a complete idiot I had been. How foolish and weak I had been. <laughs> For the majority of us, we are just average and mediocre. You've got to accept that. I know we're here at Auckland University, the most prestigious university on New Zealand, right? That is, sorry. All the charts, I looked it up this week, it's number one in every single one of them. But has anyone here ever won a Nobel Prize? Show of hands, how many? None? No Nobel Prizes. Uh, what about here, does anyone hold a world record? Currently hold a world record? Show of hands. Okay, it's a bit awkward. I once knew a guy that held a world record for a short amount of time, but then they found out it wasn't actually true. But he held a world record for the person that could throw a washing machine the furthest. (laughs) That man. He's awesome. Does anyone have a city named after them? And I don't mean you you share a name with a city, but actually they named it after you. Like you. Anyone? Show of hands. Okay. What about, let's go down from a city. What about a library? Has anyone got a library named after them? A building? What about, right, let's get real low. Has anyone got a boat named after them? Someone has named their boat after you. You know, the little dinghy. It's got written on it, you know, the, the Rowan. <laughs> Whatever you know. A- anyone? No one's got even a boat named after your name. <laughs> All right, how about this? Uh, hands up if you have a clothing label named after you. Uh, has anyone released a number one hit single? Man, look at us. Has anyone been asked to advise uh, the president of America anything? Jacinda Ardern? Okay. See, we are mediocre. 
I'm sorry, we are. That's, that's the reality. If, if God's wisdom was like the world's wisdom, he would have gone somewhere else than us to bring us to him. Like if I was God, I would have gone and got the brightest and best and gone, make them Christians. And, and then all these people, there's like awesome A-team, like Avengers, right? And I would have got the best and gone, yeah, let's go out. But what, who does Jesus start with? A couple of fishermen, a tax collector, some guys that are just kicking around with a stone. You know, there's a nobody. Some of them can't even read and write well. They're just fishermen. If God's wisdom was like the world's wisdom, he wouldn't have chosen us. There is nothing about us that makes us lovely or desirable in God's sight. But here's the thing. God's power doesn't depend on our abilities or skills or gifts or talents. God's power depends on the news about who Jesus is and what he has done. And God works through broken people like us to show the effectiveness of him. That it's about his word changing hearts. It's about the work of his son who has died in our place and risen again. It's got nothing to do with schmucks like us. And everything to do with the God who became man and died on the cross. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be smart. That we should just go, right, that's it. I'm all quitting uni. I'm just going to be a fisherman and sit on the wharf and be like, don't know fish. All day. I don't know. Did you know, in fact... In the first 100 years of the Nobel Prize, 65% of Nobel Prize winners uh, identified themselves as Christian. There's a lot of Christian Nobel Prize winners. Uh, But it wasn't their superior intellect that made them Christians or that made them useful to humanity. The thing that made them most useful, these Nobel Prize winners to humanity, was their testimony about Jesus being the Son of God and dying on a cross and rising again. So the only thing that they could ever say that would rescue someone from death and offer eternal life is this news about Jesus. Rutherford might have been able to encourage others and work out how to split the atom as New Zealand's most famous scientist. But apparently he was a Christian. And his best thing was being able to speak of Jesus. Now one of the implications of that for us is that in the church, we have absolutely no room for smugness. No room for one-upmanship. <laughs> I'm so much better than them. Look at them. You know, I've got life so much more sorted. And you're like, really? No, we're both sinners. We're both nobodies. There's no room in the church for condescending looks or for moral outrage at what someone has done. I can't believe you sinned. I can't believe you're a sinner. <laughs> Look in the mirror. Have you seen me and my poor life? There's no room for that. We don't have any reason to boast. No reason to stand and say, look at how good I am. Look at what I have done. At least not in ourselves. Look at verse 28. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So that no one may boast in his presence. No boasting. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. None of us can boast. <laughs> uh, everything that we have is a gift from God. Do you see that in verse 30? Christ became wisdom from God for us. He became our wisdom. He is our righteousness, our, our right living. He, he has lived the perfect life, not us. He is our sanctification. He is the one that is, that is making us more and more like him day by day. 
He is our redemption. He's the one who's brought us back out of death and paid the price for us. Even our salvation that we have is a gift from God. And so we can't boast in anything that we have. But what Paul wants us to understand is we mustn't stop boasting. So here's where we get it wrong. I think we hear the command not to boast in ourselves, and so we stop boasting altogether. We think boasting is totally wrong, and in our culture, that's definitely the way. Humility is so strong in our Kiwi culture, and so we, we don't boast. We just set up conversations so that people can say really good stuff about us. You know, and like, I didn't say it. They said it. That's okay, you know? And, and we, we kind of want to rightly stop boasting in ourselves, but Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Boasting is godly. Boasting is godly. Well, let me be very clear. Boasting is godly because the only thing we have to boast in when we understand what has gone on here is what Jesus has done. We can boast that God the Son died in our place. How amazing is that? We can speak of what he has done, that Jesus came and died and rose again and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you see him? Do you see what he has done? Do you see how amazing he is? That there is a God that made you and sustained you and is holding you together right now. And he became flesh and died so that we might live forever. Trust him. Do you see him? Speak of what God has done. Speak the gospel. You might not be gifted in any other way, but you can speak this message because it is news. What is it that you most naturally boast in? Why don't you think about that for a moment? Where do you find yourself kind of running to, to boast in? You know, uh, for some of us, it might be if you've got kids, kids, it's really easy. Look at them. You know, they look like me. Aren't they great? You know? uh, and you see lots of parents do that, boasting in their children. They have boast-offs. They're sitting around, well, my kid's up to reading level, blah, blah, blah. Well, my kid's doing this. And it's like, whoa. Uh, it might be for you grades. You know, I passed this year. Woo! <laughs> that might be your boast. So I, I, I got... High distinctions the whole year. And we're kind of proud in that. Or we do the, the false humility thing. where oh, I, I can't really talk about my grades. I don't want to boast. <laughs> Which is just secret for I'm not going to tell you. I actually knew a guy once that did that. And he, and he convinced everyone around him, not by ever saying it, that he got 100 in his final mark for his uh, end of high school. And, and people, he's like, oh, I don't want to say, you know, it was a good mark. And people just assumed that it was like 100. And so this rumor got going around. And anyway, you know, a number of years later, the guy was like, oh, I got like 60 or 70 or something. It was really low. <laughs> but, but I'm like, but, but you said, he said, I, I never said it. Everyone just believed it. You know, oh, I, I don't want to tell you. Right? And, and, and we do that, that, that fake boasting. Uh, where we went on holidays. You know, here's my snaps, my Facebook, my Insta posts. Right? Look at this. Look at all the beautiful parts of life. How great this is. Or uh, the job that we score. Look at the job I've got and the view I've got. You know, it's with this firm or that firm or in this place or that group. For me, um, I find myself boasting in how good a bargain I got. I'm like, you know what? I saved so much money. And I think it's okay because it's, it's me saving money. So I'm like, oh, I got a great bargain. You know, I, I got all this money off and so it was okay. And I, and I justify myself by, by speaking of my bargains. I don't know. Don't boast in anything that who we are or what we have done. They're all gifts from God. Boast in the gospel. That God the Son died for an ugly sinner like me and you. Boast in the fact that we've got nothing to offer. That God didn't choose us because of anything we did. He chose us because he loved us. And he died for us. And he's coming back again. Boast in what Jesus has done. See, frankly, I don't think we boast enough. We don't speak of the blessings of the cross enough. And why is that? 
because it looks foolish and weak. Because we don't want to look foolish to the world around us. We don't want to look weak to the world around us, and so we, we, we pull back on it. The gospel is foolishness to the world around. It's never going to look awesome in the eyes of the world. It's spoken by weak people like you and me, people who don't have it all together. Look at us. But it is God's power, God's power for those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1 was such, is such a defining moment for me. Every time I get into this part of the word of God, it just convicts me again and again. It's not about me. <laughs> it's not about my skills or strength or ability. So often I feel inadequate. I feel like, oh, I could do a better job of this. I could do a better job of that. And I'm like, oh, if only I could do this better, then church would go better. And I kind of just go, stop being arrogant. It's about God's word. Look at the reality of who God has made you and use the gifts and skills and abilities God's given you, Rowan. Shut up and speak up. Stop whinging and complaining and speak the word of God. Use God's word and explain it to others with who he's made you. He's saying the same thing to us. Use who God has made you to speak about this news through a weak and broken and fallible and flawed and mediocre people like us. We open our mouths and speak God's power to the universe that changes people's eternal destiny should they trust in the news of what we have just said. See, on that last day when Jesus comes back, only one thing will distinguish between the people who spend eternity with God and eternity in judgment under God. And that is how they respond to the news of who Jesus is and what he's done. We need to speak that news. Otherwise, they have no option. How beautiful are the the feet of those who bring good news, Paul says. Let's be people who have beautiful feet because we speak the gospel to the world around us. Let us not let the values of the world around us rob God of his power, empty him of his effectiveness. Let God's word about his son define who you are as a broken person just like me and use every moment of every day to speak that news so that God might work through his word by his spirit to see people come to know him and trust him and worship him on that day that he returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. That tonight, as we sit here together and listen to you, we can see so clearly it's not about us. We confess that so often uh, we, we, we think that we are not good enough and we start feeling insecure, and, but we recognize that we aren't good enough, that it's nothing to do with us that you have chosen us. There's nothing to do with us that you, you choose to work through us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to own that reality and help us to have great boldness and confidence and boast in you and not ourselves because you have spoken, you have acted, your son has died and risen and we look forward to that day when he comes back and we get to see you face to face. So we pray that the message about Jesus might be so central that it captivates each and every one of us, that we have the guts to speak and look foolish and weak to the world around us. By your spirit, empower us to be a church of broken, ugly, mediocre sinners with an amazing God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.